Good to see you. Okay, why don't we, uh, we're going to jump right into the book of Ephesians, and today we're going to talk about baptism, but how baptism ties into uh, the new life that God has called us to. That's what we'll be taking a look at. And the reason why we're going to take a look at baptism is um, a couple reasons. One, it's actually in the text, so if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we typically just take books of the Bible, we teach through them verse by verse, chapter by chapter, until we're all done. And the second reason why we are main reason I should say we're going through is because baptism actually comes up in the text that we're next at. The second reason, which is really the main reason, is because we got a baptism next weekend, and I thought since we have a lot of turnaround uh, with regard to our church, meaning our church is always growing, but it's always losing people, meaning people are leaving. They go to big cities because a lot of them are students and young families that can't afford to live here. So a lot of times people are always constantly coming in, but constantly going out as well. So we see this as a really unique opportunity to consistently equip people um, every couple of years on certain really important key theological points. And baptism happens to be one of those things. So we're going to address the subject of baptism, but it comes within the framework of our text. So that's why we're going to be taking a look at the passage we'll be looking at here. So Ephesians chapter four is what we're going to look at. Uh, we'll take a look at verses 1 through 6. I'll read it to you, and then I will pray, and then we'll begin to take a look at that and try to understand what this theme of baptism is all about and how it plays into sort of the big picture or narrative of the Bible. You guys excited about that? That sound good? Okay, just a little bit of enthusiasm. Um, I'm going to pray. Let's then get to work as I read it, and we'll talk about it. So God, thank you right now for opportunity to begin to understand what your word has to say about this activity. Oftentimes we can do, and we don't even really know why we do it. And so God, I pray this morning that you would help us just to understand how your word frames us and how it plays into our lives and the type of meaning that it can have and impact that it can have not only upon our lives, but upon the community of people within not only our church, but beyond our church, people who see this, people that are transformed by the gospel. So God, we pray that you would use this as an opportunity to make much of Jesus, to bring people who maybe don't know Jesus into a place of knowing Jesus and being transformed and changed. So we give you this time right now, and we pray for your help and ask for your guidance as we look at this, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you guys don't have Bibles, um, we have some people that are eager and would love to get you a Bible. Just raise your hand, and they will get you a Bible. Uh, we'll be taking a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'll read. Uh, so grab your Bible, open up there. If not, it will be also up on the screen. So I'll begin at verse 1. It says this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Remember, Paul's writing from prison. He is writing to a group of people in a city called Ephesus. These are Christians uh, that love Jesus, that are not Jewish, uh, meaning they are Gentile, and they have been brought into the family of God. And Paul's writing to these specific people uh, who are living in this particular area while he was in prison. And he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I'm going to stop right there. So Paul is talking about a number of 
different things going on here. But a lot of times, uh, scholars, theologians have taken the book of Ephesians and have sort of divided it naturally into two main categories. The first three chapters, oftentimes they identify as being Paul addressing theological matters or matters of uh, identity, who we are. Chapter four through six, oftentimes scholars identify as dealing with sort of the life or the practice. First three chapters, identity of the Christian. Last four chapters, uh, last three chapters, the uh, practice of the Christian. So uh, in some ways, there's a lot of truth to the way that you can identify that. I think it fits to some degree more or less. Um, but Paul starts out this second, uh, the beginning of the second section here, talking about the practice of the believer by basically describing himself, as I already mentioned, as a prisoner for the Lord. But then he begins to talk about uh, encouraging these people. Here's what he says. He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, uh, and I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So what Paul is basically doing up at this point, if indeed the first three chapters is him laying out, identifying who they are as a human being or who they are within the church, their identity, the last three chapters, Paul is saying, now that you know who you are, live according to who you are. Um, Paul was very aware of the fact that a lot of times, just like us, we can sometimes slip into a status of amnesia. We forget who we are. And when we forget who we are, we don't live according to who we really are. We live according to an altered identity, right? We live according to somebody else. We live like somebody else. We live according to, really for the most part, the default makeup of a heart, which is somebody who is trying desperately to be loved, to be identified, to be affirmed, to be accepted. And oftentimes we are in the same time simultaneously forgetting the fact that we are already in Christ, loved, affirmed, accepted, cared for. Paul's saying, because you are these things already, live according to the uh, manner by which you've been called. So there's three things which Paul says here that are kind of of note. First of all, he says, I urge you. I love that word, urge. It's actually the Greek word, parakaleo. Kaleo means call. Para means come alongside. And this word parakaleo basically means I come alongside you and I'm urging you. It's, you know, the word can be translated urge or call. Um, but it's the idea of not someone barking out orders, someone of authority over. Paul is not, uh, I mean, he was an apostle of the church. Paul could have been like, Look, I'm, you know, the leader of the church, and I'm telling you what to do. Paul actually uses a word that says, I'm coming alongside you, and as a fellow walker alongside you, as somebody that is really a journeyman alongside you, I'm calling you. It's the idea of basically having a workout partner, someone that is in the groove with you, someone that is on the same journey with you, someone that has the same goals and aims in life as you. And basically, the two are coming alongside saying, you can do this. You can work through this. You can live according to this. This is who you are. Walk according to this particular way. And the reality is, is this is how we grow. Paul goes on to say that I am calling you to and urging you to walk in a manner that's worthy. The Greek word that's used there basically means to just to walk either figuratively or literally. So obviously, we realize which one is this, figuratively or literally. Probably both, right? I mean, literally, we are walking as Christians. Figuratively, we are walking as Christians or intended to. And so what Paul is saying, I'm calling you, urging you to walk in the lifestyle in which you've been called. And then finally, he describes to live in a manner according to the calling to which you've been called. Later on, he talks about this word called because this uh, plays in the passage. Verse 4, he talks about 
that you are one body, one spirit. This is your call to one hope, which belongs to your call. So the idea of call is a very important word for Paul that he's going to keep revisiting, and so will we over the next several weeks. But the word call that's used here can oftentimes be identified as vocation. Uh, In other words, it's not just simply you meandering through life, trying to figure out, you know, what's best for you. Um, If you don't know what the word meander is, you can oftentimes find good graphic examples of what meandering is by watching a lady walk through a shopping mall. (laughs) Meandering, it's there's no real aim or no real goal. Uh, You're just window shopping. You are looking at, you are literally... You may be walking straight and all of a sudden you veer to the left because you saw something that caught your eye or there's a sail or there's a sail over here or something. And there is a way of just kind of meandering. Paul is saying you don't meander through life. You walk through life. You have a goal. There's a call. There's something to which God has called you. Now this, because Paul is saying that you're in Christ and I'm calling you. I'm urging you as a fellow journeyman, someone who's on the same journey with you urging you, calling you to walk, live according to the call. Now, we're not going to unpack to a large degree what that idea of call is. We'll be doing that over the next several weeks. But the idea, in short, is that the gospel is really the call that we're called to. The gospel that informs us, it speaks to us, it reshapes us, it reorients our lives. So we don't live our lives according to the default makeup of the way we used to live. In chapter 2, he talks about used to live according to the course of this world. The, world, uh, the word course that he uses there uh, implies the idea that you just sort of were meandering, as I mentioned, through life uh, according to, in fact, the word used there has been identified to kind of mean like a weather vane. So you think about a weather vane, and any way the wind is blowing is the way that the weather vane begins to shape or shift according or adjust accordingly. And if you look at, really for the most part, that's kind of the way a lot of people within this world live. That whatever is trendy, whatever is hip, whatever is cool, whatever is, you know, being blasted on late night infomercials, whatever is on talk shows, whatever book is on Oprah, whatever thing is trendy in that moment seems to be the latest fad that you or we adopt. That is, by default, by definition, living according to the course of this world. Paul says, don't live like that. You have a calling. You have a life that God's given you. It's a great calling. It's a beautiful calling. It's a restorative calling. It's a healing calling. It is a calling that involves being informed and reshaped by the gospel. Now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to go out and to live your life in a way that brings transformation, not only by you preaching, communicating the gospel, not only through your words, but also through your works, meaning good works. We do good works as a way of being a signal, a neon sign to this world around us that there is a God that is great. He loves you. He loves this fallen, broken world, and he has an intention to bring restoration and healing to you and to this broken world that we live in. That's the call. That's in short. So Paul is basically saying, I'm calling you to live according to this call of God. This restorative call that you are one body, one church. You have one Lord, one baptism. Um, He goes on to describe all of these particular concepts. He says, one God, one Father of all. The key word in these few verses is what? Guys follow along now? One. Good job. Good job. One. One is the key word, which I just said like eight times. One. 
one Lord, one God, one baptism, one Father, one Spirit, one all. And this is the idea that Paul is saying, is that there is a unity amongst the body, which God has called you. There's one God, one work. There's one thing that God is doing. He's uniting, bringing together both Jew and Gentile alike into this one body, whereby together, not bound together by fear or anxiety or angst or force, but they are both in the household of God, loving one another, serving one another, using the energy that they have to serve and take care of the other person rather than using their energy to become bitter or to find fault or accusation or bring about gossip or bring about factions and arguments. Paul's saying we have this energy that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit, the power of God to help us to live according to this call. And Paul's saying, I'm calling you, urging you to be part of this. But he makes reference in that little section there to talk about baptism. Baptism, even though he doesn't elaborate upon baptism here, he just assumes that the people to whom he's writing already know what baptism is because obviously they have been baptized and obviously they were probably already in a habit of baptizing. Paul did not need to belabor the point, describe, explain what it is. What I want to do this morning is I want to take a moment because, like I said, what I referenced to earlier, is that I want to take a look at baptism and try to understand what it is. The reason for that is because there's a tendency, I think, for us in our culture to hear certain traditions or aspects of the church, and especially depending upon where you're at in life, I oftentimes discover, find that people that are maybe of an older generation feel the need to just simply do them because that's just what you do. You don't question, you don't ask, you just do it. It's church tradition, you just engage. That's what's expected of you, you just do it. And oftentimes, that can lead to sort of a harsh criticalness where there can be a tendency to look at younger generations and be like, you guys are so rebellious, you don't get baptized, you don't do this, you don't, and why don't you follow according to the rules? Yet a younger generation, which a lot of our church is, can look at this tradition of baptism and be like, I don't want to do that because they're telling me to do it. Like, I don't want to engage in something I don't understand. It's just some sort of stupid, ancient, archaic, disconnected, meaningless ritual. So I don't want to do it. What I hope to do today is to actually give some information to inform you as to what baptism is about, why the church has done it, why the church continues to do it, and why it's meaningful. So that you could then decide and look at it and ask that if you are a disciple of Christ, that you wouldn't engage something without understanding what it is, and that you wouldn't reject something because it no, has no meaning to you. I hope to inform you, to give you some meaning so that you would enter into it and see it as a valuable thing. So that, for example, if you are a Christian and you've never been baptized, that you would get baptized that you would see it as a part of the family. If you are in the family, that you would see it as something that I get to be a part of this amazing entry point, this ceremony, if you would, this way of recognizing that I am in that family. If you're a Christian, you've been baptized already, that it would basically help you to see the beauty of it is, of, of what it is, and that you would be excited and want to be at the baptism, invite people to be part of the baptism if they've never been baptized. If you're here and you're not a Christian, my hope is that not that you would just get baptized, but that you would meet Jesus and understand what it is to be in his family, of God's family, as a redeemed, washed, cleansed, forgiven, loved, accepted, welcomed person that has been invited into this family and has been made new. And that you would join that family and want to trust this God who has done amazing things on your behalf to wash and cleanse and forgive you of your sin, to bring you into this 
hope that many of us here share. So that's where I'm headed. What I want to do this morning is I'm going to just basically take a look at a handful of things. We'll take a look at three things, in fact. One, we'll take a look at the historical narrative of baptism. Secondly, we'll kind of transition into the biblical narrative of baptism. And finally, we'll just kind of take a look at with some implications of what all this means for us. So with that, let's jump in. We'll take a look at, first of all, the historical narrative of baptism. In other words, the big question that I'm trying to understand here is, where did baptism come from? Like, like where do we get this notion or this idea of baptism? Because if you've ever read the Old Testament, you will never find a verse that says that they were baptizing people. So the question kind of naturally arises, like, in the New Testament, you see people being baptized. In the Old Testament, you don't see anybody getting baptized. And so you're kind of like, where did this tradition begin to get picked up, and what does it mean? So it's an important question for us to really ask and understand. So the way I think baptism begins to enter into our kind of radar screen uh, is from the historical narrative. In other words, it begins to come out of the scene even before the Bible begins to write about it. And the way that we begin to discover this is through what, first of all, what's called the Qumran community, all right? Um, I'm not saying that these guys basically invented it. I'm just saying that we know historically these guys practiced it. So a little bit about who the Qumran uh, community is. So first century Judaism, what you have is a community of people that followed Yahweh, but not all of them followed Yahweh um, with uniformity, meaning you had all sorts of different sects, meaning S-E-C-T-S, sects, different tribes, different groups. If you were to be in or parallel it in today's world, it's like different denominations. You had Pharisees, you had Sadducees, you had Essenes, uh, you had other different types of groups of people that basically were committed to Yahweh, but what you had within those different sects of communities is each one were basically wrestling with the question of who are really Yahweh's faithful people? What do Yahweh's faithful people look like? Does faithfulness, fidelity to Yahweh look like um, locking arms, working with Rome? dealing with Rome, because Rome's kind of our overseer. Rome is our king, and do we work with Rome? That's kind of what the Sadducees did. Does it look like being rebellious against Rome, fighting against Rome, rejecting Rome, because Rome's a bunch of pagan, idol-worshiping hell people that are not going to be able to ever be redeemed? Do we fight? Do we resist? Do we carry on the tradition the way, if you're familiar with the Maccabee brothers, the, the Maccabean revolt? Do we become revolters, rebels, uh, these people were actually called zealots. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was a guy by the name of Simon the Zealot. He worked side by side amongst 12 other apostles with a guy by the name of Matthew, the tax collector. Shocking little bit of information, true story, that these two people in normal life would have hated each other. It would have been like having on the same team Hillary Clinton and Paul Rand. Like serving Jesus together, all right? Two people that are completely at opposite ends of political spectrums. Maybe even throw in there a terrorist. An Al-Qaeda terrorist. Former Al-Qaeda terrorist. All working on Jesus' team together, preaching, communicating, living out the gospel. This was the community to some degree, large degree, that Jesus was gathering around himself. So in that being said, you had this group of people. We don't know a whole lot about them other than we oftentimes just describe them as the Qumran community. This was a group of people that basically said, we don't like what's happening within Jerusalem. Uh, We don't like the way that Judaism is going. We feel like it's become watered down. People aren't really following Yahweh the way they used to. And the whole entire community of Judaism has become corrupted. 
the temple has become corrupted. Everybody's kind of become sort of a co-conspirator with Rome. We don't like that. So this group of people called the Qumran community basically separated themselves. They were called separatists. They separated themselves from Jerusalem, moved out into the wilderness. Uh, conveniently, just down the road from Jerusalem is the uh, beginning area of the desert, which actually would lead you to the region of the Dead Sea. And this is one of the reasons why, if you guys have ever been familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls actually were believed to have come from the region where this group of um, Qumran community had lived, that they studied the scripture, they repeated the scripture, they lived according to the scripture, and they basically at the same time um, repudiated uh, Jerusalem or Judaism that was basically seated within Judaism. These are people that looked at the temple and basically believed that, te- that the temple had kind of become prostituted. And that it was become broken and defiled and messed up. That the system in the temple was not functioning properly. So these people were separatists and they lived according to a very pure lifestyle or as they saw it within the scriptures. And this is a very interesting bit of, of uh, history that they had written. So this comes from sort of what's called a manual of discipline. Here's what it says. It is through the spirit of God, God's true counsel concerning the ways of man, that all his sins a uh, person, all a man's uh, sins can be expiated when his flesh is sprinkled with purifying water, baptism. And he goes on to say, it shall be made clean by humble submission of his soul to the precepts of God. Uh, that's another way of basically saying, if they repent and if they get baptized, they will demonstrate the fact that they are the true Israel of God and live according to the precepts of God. Which... If you hear that storyline, that should sound uh, very similar to the message that you hear John the Baptist preached, which is one of the reasons why a lot of scholars have actually suggested that John the Baptist may have actually been part of this Qumran community, because the message that John preached was very similar to the message that this Qumran community preached. So we now begin to sort of begin to see a blending of the historical background of baptism, begin to merge with the biblical uh, narrative of baptism, and the pivot point is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. So again, we don't know for sure whether or not John was connected to this Qumran community, but what we do know is that John's message was very similar. John's message was basically one of repent, turn to the king, God, God is coming, God is uh, prepare your hearts, get ready, make straight the paths, which basically the, both the Qumran community and John the Baptist were basically reiterating an Old Testament passage from the book of Isaiah. Looking forward to the day uh, in which when one day God would show up and basically remake, rebuild a, a, a nation around himself. And John basically said, if you want to be part of this new rebuilding of Israel, God's people, God's beloved ones, the followers of Yahweh around himself, the way that you show, the way that you demonstrate that you belong to this new community is you repent from your sins and you get baptized. This is exactly what John's saying. So, in short, if I can summarize this, next slide, kind of a little bit of a summary. The way I would summarize this is that basically baptism would link to the Exodus story. Um, Most scholars believe that there was some sort of hint to that, that going out to the water, especially out at the Jordan, why why they do at the Jordan and why not at other place? Well, because the Jordan sort of uh, represented or symbolized going through the Red Sea. It was like when Israel came out of Egypt, if you can think of it this way, there was was post uh, or, or, or pre-Egypt uh, life, and then there was post-Egypt life. And the distinction mark, the thing that separated pre-Egypt life from post-Egypt life was the Red Sea. 
And the same idea was basically being perhaps recreated, communicated within baptism. There is post or pre-Yahweh life, which you live according to your own lifestyle, you live according to your own ways, your own understanding. And then there is post-Yahweh conversion life in which you have gone through the waters of baptism, in which your sins have been washed, you've renounced your past life, you've turned from your past life, and you've turned to the new ways in which Yahweh calls us to live. Which brings up an interesting note, that what John the Baptist was basically proclaiming is that Yahweh, God, has come and as king, and he's calling people to make straight the paths of Yahweh. What, in short, John the Baptist was basically announcing was that the king has come. Stop living for alternative kingdoms, counterfeit kingdoms. Live for the true king. So the question might be asked, how do I do that? How do I stop living for this false king? False kingdom is you renounce it, you turn from it, you repent from it, and you turn to the true and living God. How do I know that I've done that? John's answer was, you get baptized. That's a way, it's a public way of defining, uh, showing forth that you have renounced the old kingdom and moved into this new kingdom in which God reigns, which raises an interesting note, that the fact of the matter is that every single one of us are really in the same type of situation where there are different kingdoms. There's one true king, one true kingdom, but the problem that every single one of us have to confront at some point is that we give our hearts and our lives to alternative kings, alternative kingdoms. In other words, the idea of a king is, in short, the principle of having something over your life that governs you, leads you, you consult, you turn to, you bend your knee to, you give complete uh, um, you know, uh, authority in your heart over to, you submit over to. That's the idea of a king. And the reality is that every single one of us in this room has something like that. For some, it's Yahweh, it's Jesus. For others, it may be yourself. It may be uh, a principle. It may be an idea. Maybe money. You, you, the love of money may be what you live for. Power, maybe. Now, in ancient cultures, they would oftentimes deify or personalize these ancient concepts by putting them behind a face. So you have like Diana or Zeus who depicts power or Thor or some of these other types of ancient gods and goddesses. But the idea is really the same. Every single one of us have something that we give our hearts to, we give our lives to, we devote ourselves to. And oftentimes it's defined based upon what you fear the most, what, you, what threatens you the most, what you desire more than anything else in your life, these are the things that oftentimes we can begin to trace back what is the true God in our lives. And what John the baptizer would say is that turn from these alternative kingdoms because the true king is coming. Prepare your heart. Make way. Make straight the path. Repent, turn, and get baptized as a way of showing that there has been a post, a pre-experience and then a post-experience, that you are a different person you no longer belong to yourself. You belong to the people of Yahweh who have been washed and cleansed and made clean. You're part of the covenant people, the Exodus people that came out of Egypt, that were part of Pharaoh's world and system and broken empire. And now you now belong to the empire whereby it's governed by Yahweh. And he does not govern his empire with a heavy fist. He is a God who doesn't say, make bricks, make more bricks, work hard till your fingers are bloody and bruised. He is a God that says, take a day off. He's a God that says, have a Sabbath. 
Enjoy your family. Don't just keep using them. Don't just keep passing by them, saying hi, bye, because you have to keep working in the brickyards. He's a God that says, take a day off and enjoy life. I'm a God that gives good gifts to my people in my kingdom. So this is sort of, like I said, where the blending of the historical narrative and the biblical narrative kind of come together. So now we begin to move and look at the biblical narrative. And this is where we begin to get some of the nuts and bolts of this. So next slide, we'll begin to see, first of all, Jesus. What we'll notice, first of all, here is that Jesus himself comes on the scene. And what we notice is that Jesus gets baptized, which is kind of a unique thing. And in some ways, it's kind of one of those questions. Wow, Jesus got baptized. Well, if that's a shock to you, that's good, because it was a shock to John the baptizer. So I'll read the story. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. I'll just read it up here. It says this, Jesus came to be baptized by John. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And just before that, what was cut out is John says, why do you want to come and get baptized? I mean, you should be baptizing me. Uh, you, why do you want me to baptize you? Jesus says, I've got to do everything that fulfills, that identifies myself, that puts myself in the same family lineage of those that are awaiting the king. Then he says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's kind of an interesting story because Jesus gets baptized. And as he comes out of the water, this voice comes from heaven affirming his love for his beloved son. Now, we all know, obviously, that the voice is coming from Yahweh, the Father. And within this uh, picture, we get sort of a a picture of um, uh, the Trinity, uh, Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And there's this love, this affirmation, this affection that's going on between them. But what we see is that Jesus comes out of the water, and this dove comes descending upon him. Which, to some degree, if you read that, it's sort of um, one of those passages in the Bible where you read, you kind of scratch your head, like, why a dove? Like, what, what is the whole idea, the notion of a dove coming upon Jesus? I mean, uh, and again, this is one of the areas where we can read this and try our best to try to understand what does it mean to have a dove descend upon you? And we think of doves as being like this nice bird. Um, you know, it's gentle, it's calm, it's mellow. It's, it's really the point of a dove descending upon Jesus is a way of basically showing that the Holy Spirit is nice, kind, gentle, and friendly. I don't think so. Uh, I mean, it could be that. And not that there's anything unkind about the Holy Spirit. It's very kind, very nice, very gentle. But I think there's way more to it because I think perhaps what's going on here, this is to some degree where it's helpful to know a little bit about some of the historical background that was going on here. Uh, during this time, first century, there were different translations of the Old Testament, one of which uh, was called the Targum. And in these Targums, they would translate the Bible into various different languages of the common people. In one of the Targums, in the Genesis story, Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 3, uh, there is the account where it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God brooded over the oceans the way a dove broods over her young. And the picture is that of a dove brooding over this, you know, this uncreated thing, this world, making something brand new, something beautiful, something good. And so what we see here in this story, perhaps, is an allusion to this, that by the Holy Spirit falling upon Jesus is a, is a way of basically saying God is, God is doing something brand new, something unexpected, something never done before. Brand new creation is about to unfold before your eyes. And God looks at his son and says, I love my son. 
What's unique about this is that up until this point, in the story of Jesus, we don't know anything that Jesus has done up to this point. Jesus never preached a sermon that we are aware of. He never turned, uh, you know, regular nasty water from the tap into really good, fine wine. Jesus never fed anybody. Jesus never did a miracle. He never straightened out someone's lame arm. He never did anything that we're aware of up until this point. But the Father just simply declares and affirms his love for the Son, not having done anything, which I find fascinating because oftentimes we tend to link the love of God for us as individuals and as a community, as people, based upon what we do, how skilled we are, how gifted we are, how active we are, how much we do for God, how skilled we are in understanding the Bible, how much we pray, how moral our lives are. But what we see with Jesus is that the Father's voice comes over him and says, this is my beloved son. I love him. He's beloved. So the question can be asked, what do we do to be loved? Well, that's interesting. With Jesus, it was just be in your loved. The way that we are loved is just be loved. It's not do something and then you'll be loved. Be loved. Know that in God, there is, he just already loves you. God is love. God loves because he is by nature loving. And so we see the same type of love coming all over Jesus where God affirms his love to Jesus. So first of all, we see that Jesus gets baptized. Second thing we'll take a look at is that Jesus tells others to be baptized. So take a look at Matthew 28, verse 19. Matthew 28, 19. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this is what's typically called the Great Commission. Jesus tells his disciples that follow him, as you guys go out, as you preach the gospel, as you're part of that call we referred to earlier, as you're living that out in both word and deed, so your words are synchronizing with your deeds, your actions, that as you go out and do this, make disciples. Notice he doesn't say make converts. Make disciples. We oftentimes think of converts as being the number one thing that we are called to do, which means as long as I can get you to pray a prayer, accept Jesus into your heart, I've done my job. We are called to make disciples. That means we come alongside people like Paul did. And we walk alongside them, we urge them, we help them, we cultivate relationship with them so that they understand what it means to follow Christ. It's not just simply making converts, it's helping to raise and make disciples. And Jesus says, as you go out and make disciples, baptize them. So we know that whatever baptism, the baptism is, we know that Jesus actually tells his disciples, followers, as you go out, you preach, you communicate, make disciples, Part of that discipleship-making process is to be baptized. Next thing we take a look at, third one, is that Jesus' people tell others to get baptized. So like Jesus telling his disciples to get baptized, we know that Jesus' people, as they preached, as they went out, as they did the Jesus stuff, part of the Jesus stuff they did was to include and encourage others to get baptized. Here's a couple examples. Next verse, or next slide. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Uh, Peter preaches, and he says, Peter said to him, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Pause right here, a little bit of a side note. What's kind of fascinating about the idea, or the topic, or the theme of baptism, is that nowhere in the New Testament is there sort of one unified spot that basically says, here's how to do baptisms. It's kind of an interesting thing, because there's not like one verse, or one paragraph in the Bible that basically says, okay, baptism, here's how the church 
has always done it. Here's how you should, as a church, do it. It should be in water that's 65 degrees and no colder. And it should be, you know, you wear a white robe. And it should be, you know, there's nothing that describes this. You know, and so what you find, what you actually have, are fragments of the ways in which they did it. So, for example, you see in this particular passage, uh, basically Peter says, when you go out and baptize, baptize them in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Another passage in the book of Acts, it says they went out and they baptized and baptized them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So which is it? Baptism in the name of Jesus, baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in a, in a true story, churches have actually divided over these little squabbles. People are like, no, 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 it must be Jesus' name only. The others are like, no, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which is right. You're wrong. We're going to start our own church. We hate you. We don't like you. We're going to separate from you. We are going to badmouth you. And if we had blogs, we will blog about you because we do things right and you don't. It's tragic, but it's true. It's silly. But the fact of the matter is, is that there is no monolithic description as to how baptism was to be performed, how it was to be done. We get fragments of it. So what that means is that, I think, if anything, there are many different ways. Should it be underwater, completely submerged underwater? Should it be sprinkling? Should it be the ocean where it's ridiculously cold? <laughs> Emphasize, ridiculously cold. Does the pastor not like baptizing? I love baptizing. I hate the coldness of the water. But because I love you, I will joyfully go out there and do it. But the point of the matter is, should it be in a pool? Like, it doesn't say. It just doesn't say. And so we know that we're just simply to do it. So, Acts chapter 2 uh, Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. So we see sort of this urgent plea, like, why wait? Why are you guys sitting around? We've got to do something. You're in the family now. You belong to God. You're part of this one family, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Who is hindering you? Who wants to be baptized right now? And we're told that they stood up and got baptized. So we see, first of all, again, reiteration. We see that Jesus gets baptized. We see that Jesus tells others to get baptized. Thirdly, we see that Jesus' people tell others to get baptized. uh, Fourthly, we see that Jesus' people, finally, they got baptized in obedience. Not only were they commanded to do it or called to do it, but they did. They got baptized. So take a look at the next slide. Uh, Just a couple of verses here. We'll finish up, wrap it up. Acts chapter 241, it says, And those who received the word of God, they were baptized. And they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So at the end of that sermon, How do you know whether or not these people actually heard what Peter was preaching? This is one of the things that oftentimes is challenging for any public speaker. You're like, you know, uh, how do I know, how do I know that people are actually responding? Because we're not a church that's like, amen, brother, you know, and uh, you guys can be. Like, you you can shout amen, you can say, all right, I don't care. It's fine for you guys to show enthusiasm. In fact, every once in a while, it's just great to maybe even clap or, you know, even during worship to raise your hands or sing loud or you know, break out a little jig or clap your hands or get on your knees. Like, we're, we're totally good with all forms of enthusiasm. And yet, how did the early church know whether or not people were actually receiving the message that Peter, uh, uh, Peter was preaching to them? Because they immediately got baptized. They responded. They had some form of baptismal device there, and they immediately did it. Second thing we see is that Acts 9, 18. And again, there's a lot of verses I could have used, but for the sake of time, um, he says, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, from Paul's eyes. So this is uh, a reference to the conversion of Paul the Apostle. 
Now, it's interesting because Paul uh, wrote about baptism. In fact, he wrote about baptism probably more than any other New Testament writer. And Paul performed baptism. Paul was baptized. Paul was a disciple of Jesus. But this is actually the account of Paul's baptism, which kind of I find fascinating because there's nothing really ornate about it. Like, there's not a lot of glory. It's not like, you know, Paul had this amazing experience and he was baptized. It just simply says, actually, something is very strange. It's one of those passages in the Bible where I'm just like, what is it talking about? I have absolutely no idea what it's talking about. It says, and immediately something like scales fell from Paul's eyes. What? What does that mean? Like, like what does that mean to have something like scales fall from your eyes? Well, Paul, we know, um, was on his way to a particular city to arrest a bunch of Christians, perhaps even have them killed. While Paul's on the way, uh, he was literally knocked off of his horse. He had this vision of Jesus. His eyes went blind. He wasn't able to see, apparently, by scales on his eyes. And Paul was actually brought back to this particular city whereby he waited there. And this guy by the name of uh, Ananias actually came to Paul, who was probably on Paul's hit list, comes to Paul. Uh, he's told by God, go to Paul, tell him about Jesus. He's one of mine now. And I'm, imagine Ananias is like freaking out, thinking like, God, I know I'm on Paul's hit list. Like, are you sure? And God's like, I'm sure he belongs to me now. So he goes in there, Ananias prays for Paul. These scales fall from Paul's eyes. And it says, and immediately Paul rose and was baptized. This is basically saying, Paul, you're not an enemy anymore. You're my brother. There's a pre-existence Paul. There's a post-existence Paul. There's a pre-Egypt Paul. There's a post-Egypt Paul. There's a pre-Pharaoh Paul. There's a post-Pharaoh Paul. There is a pre-Jesus Paul. There's this post-Jesus Paul in which Paul is now a family member. And the way to signify that Paul is family is they baptized him right then and there. And Paul was in the family. It's amazing. So what does it all mean for us? Wrap it up. What are some of the implications? Well, we know that in the New Testament, that, next slide, that Paul actually talks a little bit about baptism. We'll take a look at a couple of verses. So next slide, uh, we'll look at some of these quickly. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So the idea of baptism, according to Paul, implies that uh, now that you're in Christ, you have put on Christ. Meaning, uh, you're not just naked, you're not unclothed, you're not clothed in Pharaoh's clothing anymore. You're not part of this old world system which is bound for destruction and brokenness. You now have been clothed in Christ. And the evidence, the proof, the knowledge that we know that you're part of this working of Christ and have put on Christ because you've been baptized. You belong to Jesus now. We know that. We were there at your baptism. We saw it. You're part of the family. You're at the dinner table. You're part of us. And the way to, re, uh, to remember the fact that you're part of this dinner table family experience is they would take of communion every time they meet. Every time they gather together, they would sit down. And so if you think of it this way, baptism would be oftentimes a one-time experience, recognizing that you're part of the family. Uh, communion would oftentimes be viewed as a family meal. Come together. Who eats the meal? Family members. How do they eat it? Forgiveness. You don't sit down and eat the meal whereby you have bitterness and anger in your heart towards your other family members. It's one of the ways in which Paul would say, don't eat it in an unworthy manner. If you've got bitterness in your heart, if you have offenses in your heart in which you have been hurt or wounded or you've been gossiping or bickering or uh, frustrated towards other people that are part of the family members, get those things right, then go to the table, then eat. That's how you eat in a worthy manner because it's a way of identifying the fact that you were once on the outs with the Father, with God, and yet God has beckoned you. He has cleansed you. He's washed you. He's welcomed you. And so therefore now you are in this family of welcome family of sinner and saint simultaneously the welcome at the table so romans chapter 6 verse 4 
uh, Paul likes it this way. He says that we were buried, therefore, with him in baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Uh, baptism, when we baptize you, when I baptize you, um, I bring you out of the water. We don't, it's, they're, they're, not, they're not called drownings. They're called baptisms. The reason why they're not drownings is because drownings don't tell the story of the gospel adequately. Um, drownings are intended to just end life. Baptisms are to bring about the awareness that we're not dead. We don't stay under the water. We get brought back to life. That God has done something. That just as Christ was crucified, buried, rose again, so you, if you are following this Jesus, are crucified, buried, and yet rose again. And I want to finish with this statement. Because at the end of the day, this is about discipleship. Baptism is about who do you follow? Who do you follow in this life? Some of us might be like, well, I kind of follow Jesus. Some of us might be like, I don't follow Jesus. Um, but really the matter is that all of us follow someone or something. So I'll read you a passage uh, and end with this. Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, 25. It says this. Jesus then told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In short, what Jesus is basically saying is that if you're going to follow me, you need to know that you will follow me all the way to the point of death. Now, we hear the idea of Jesus saying, pick up your cross, follow me, and oftentimes that becomes a cliche statement, meaning we hear it, but we don't understand the significance of it. And when we hear, yeah, Jesus is talking about, you know, pick up your cross. You know, that's right. Uh, it's a piece of jewelry, right? You put it around your neck. You have a ring that has a cross on it, or it's got a nice little diamond on it, or it's made out of 14-karat gold. Like, no, not at all. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about. That's looking at the cross through 21st century lens, and it's completely missing the point. The idea of the cross, first century, if you were to hurt someone, come around and say, uh, pick up your cross, follow me. And, and if you don't pick up your cross, you cannot be my disciples. What you would hear is Jesus saying, unless you die in the most heinous, graphic, humiliating, broken of ways, you cannot be my follower. It would have been shocking. So if I were to say to you, right now, who wants to be a follower of Jesus? What that means is you must be willing to die to yourself, die to your hopes, die to your dreams, die to your aspirations. Most of us would be like, I don't want that. Jesus needs new PR. Because you don't start a campaign or a world religion by saying, anyone who wants me, wants to be part of my religion, you must die. But I was thinking about this. Jesus goes on to say that unless you die, you cannot live. If you seek to save your life, you will die. If you seek to die along with me, then you will rise. And in some very real way, every single false god, false king in this life that we oftentimes give ourselves to and follow, at some point will undergo a season, period, a moment of death. Now, they don't advertise that. Nobody ever stands up and says, Let's say, for example, the people of makers of Rogaine. If you follow us, you will have a nice head of hair and you will be hot and you will get all the attractive women that you could ever dream of. 
or if you follow the slim fit diet, then you will look sexy and hot and you will have as many men as you can even imagine staring at you. If you follow these five steps and drink this type of juice and you will have six pack abs and you will have money coming out of your pockets. What they don't tell you is at some point, every single fad dies. The older you live, the more you begin to realize that this is just the way it is. Every single fad that has ever come along that has always promised you heaven. That's what it is, heaven. You will look thin, you will be beautiful, you will have money, men, women will be gawking at you, you will be popular, everyone will love you if you follow these steps or these processes or this help. You will have life. But every single thing that has ever come and gone is gone for good. The problem is, what they don't tell you, is that if you give your heart and give your life to these things that will one day die, when they die, you die. But Jesus has a secret up his sleeve that he doesn't tell you right up and right off the bat that his disciples were not aware. But we know, because we know the story, that Jesus says, if you follow me, you will die. But my secret is, I rise. And if you follow me, you will rise too. Death does not spell the end for you. That's really good news. And this is why we call Jesus good. Because he invites us to say, your story does not have to be that of Pharaoh's, which leads to death and destruction and brokenness. Jesus would describe it as hell. That there's a different story. There's an alternative path whereby you can enter into, but it will cost you your life. You will die, but if you follow me, your death will only become a gateway to new life. And that storyline of acceptance, of welcome, of love, of death and resurrection is depicted in what we call and celebrate through baptism. That's what we're inviting you into. If that is the story that defines your life, or it's the story that you want to define your life, I invite you to trust Jesus, to turn to him. And he'll wash you, he'll cleanse you. So in short, finish with this thought. I'm going to have the worship team come on up and I'm done. Is that if I were to put it this way, um, when you're baptized, you are actually declaring that God has acted upon you and that you have responded by faith and are a part of the family of love, welcomed, washed, and raised called people of God. This is the family you now belong to. If that's you, and you've never been baptized, I invite you to be baptized. Because that's your declaration that this is my family. I don't deserve to be in this family, but by grace, by love, by a great act of God acting on my behalf for me, because he is motivated by unquenchable love. I'm in that family. I could eat at that table. That's what baptism is. It's a statement of saying, I'm, I'm in there. I want to go in those waters and feel the coldness of the water and feel the darkness of the watery grave, but know that that's not my end because the people conducting the baptism love me enough to where it's not a drowning, it's a baptism. They will bring me out and coming out of that water is a way of saying I'm alive I am new death is not the end death is only the beginning to something 
incredible that God has called me to. So I want to finish. Um, I'm done, by the way. How about we all stand? What I want to do right now is, um, as we finish with song and partake in communion, the family meal, like I said earlier, I explained to you kind of the idea about the family meal. I want to ask you that right now, it's kind of like a, a call of action. If you're here, and if we had a body of water, and in the duration of this message, you thought you've been a Christian for maybe some length of time, and you didn't get baptized. Look, for me, I, I was a Christian for almost two and a half, maybe three years. I was leading Bible studies. Like, I was... I was a leader in my youth group. All right, I got saved when I was like 15, 16. And I, 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 to me, like, it reached a point where I was like, if I get baptized and everyone will know that I'm like this imposter who's leading Bible studies and I've never been baptized. So I, I reached a climax where I was kind of like embarrassed to even get baptized. But then finally I got over my embarrassment because I realized the call to follow Jesus was a call to die, which meant a die to dying to my pride, which felt incredibly vulnerable. But it was a call to come follow Jesus. Um, so, in short, what I'm going to say, and I'll ask for a response, that if you would have liked to get baptized right now, which we're not going to, but there's a way of you saying, maybe bringing the future into the present, you're going to say, I want to get baptized. That's me. Maybe you've been a Christian for some length of time and you've never been baptized. But now this has made sense to you. This has brought meaning to your understanding as to what baptism is about, and you want to do that. Maybe you're not a Christian here, and you realize you want to follow Jesus and get baptized. Um, so I'm going to call for a show of hands. So if that's you right now, just raise your hand. Say, I want to be baptized. That's it. Raise your hand really, really high. Awesome. It's great. Proud of you guys. Good job. Thank you. It's really cool. It's really cool. Good. It's great. It's great. We had a lot of people for service too, so I'm, I'm excited. What I want to do is I want to pray over you guys who raise your hand. That's cool since we have a bunch of people standing right here right now, so it's not going to be awkward. So if you raise your hand... Um, Maybe raise your hand one more time, and if you're around those people, maybe just lay hands on them. I want to pray for them, because what we're basically saying by laying hands on you is we're saying that you're being baptized, not just as an individual into Christianity. You're being baptized into a family. You're in a family. You're part of a family. That means as a family, we will let each other down. We will hurt each other's feelings. We will break confidence from some time to time in our lives. But family members live within this family of grace and forgiveness. That's what brought us into this family. That means that we operate according to grace and forgiveness, which means that when we are offended or hurt, we have a pattern, a path, an example to follow as to how to make reconciliation and restitution. So you have family around you. So I'm going to pray. We'll sing. We'll take of communion. We have some people up in the side that would love to pray for you. So if you're here and you just have anything that's going on in your life, we need prayer. I want to invite you into that. So right now, I want to pray for those of you that are going to be baptized. So God, right now, thank you for those that have raised their hands that want to be baptized. We pray that you would uh, just protect and uh, even for just this experience, God, for them, that it would be a momentous experience that would radically change their life, show them that they belong to a family. They're not individuals. They're not out there on their own. They're part of a family that Jesus, you brought us into. For those, maybe God, here today that... Um, knew they maybe should have raised their hand but they didn't God thank you for them as well you love them and um, there's no guilt there's no shame in not raising your hand God I, I pray that they would know that they're loved and they're invited to that same profound life changing experience of trusting Jesus and being brought in that family so help us now God to respond in love and worship song to you 